0: Mike in his prime. They only care about a nigga when he writing a rhyme. What? Kenny Lofton. You feeling my pace? They only care about a nigga when he's still in the bass. It's like I'm whip still. I'm fucking a all. They only care about a nigga when he dunking the ball. Man, and to break my heart, the worst stage, I just play my part. Just caught fire like a young Richard Pryor with unforgettable quotes. Yo, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Color Reimagine podcast presented to you by People of Color Clothing. And today we have another very, very special topic. Today we are talking about the black athletes in collegiate sports and their influence on culture. And today I have two very special guests with me who are now going to introduce themselves.
1: Hey, what's up? My name is Dorian Smith
0: and Jonathan Riley. I just felt these guys were appropriate for this topic because you know, a Jonathan Riley is culturally inclined um, when it comes to athletics and being connected and stuff like that so I felt he was definitely apropos for this and then Dorian Smith um, when you when you talk about the black athlete when you talk about athletes playing at all levels Dorian is definitely he definitely has an interesting path which I'm sure he's going to dive into once we get into it so the first question I want to pose to this particular episode is Dorian what what motivated you what was your motivate motivating factor into wanting to become an athlete
1: Oh, wow, man, that's a great question. What motivated me to become an athlete was really my my cousin, um, Gary Matthews Jr. Went to all of his high school baseball games, um, minor league games, all the way up into the pros. So I thought for real I was going to be a baseball player. And then it got to high school. And uh, puberty kicked in for some kids. Uh, <laughs> and it turned out I was better at hitting quarterbacks than uh, hitting curveballs.
0: Yeah, it was, did you see sports as almost like a, a way out in a sense? Yeah. Or, or like your way to get to college versus just being like a regular student?
1: Um, it was definitely a way to get to college. I was sought after um, mm-hmm. just cause I was a larger guy.
0: I started out playing baseball just like you. Mm-hmm. And then I transitioned to basketball after having a growth spurt. Um, and it, again, my college, my high school basketball coach was just on my ass about me like coming out and playing and just having that black body out there just to, mm-hmm. you know, get in the way of stuff. Um, but it's just he actually cultivated my talent. Um, he, it was pretty much illegal, but he got me a trainer and put me on a food plan to gain weight. Um, oh man, you had that, you had that good coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, I end up getting a, I end up getting an athletic scholarship myself. And for me personally, I know like being an athlete was my way out because in my family, it's like we on my mother's side, it's just all athletes, all right. athletes, and that's our way out. So I figured that the more I invested in basketball, that can get me to college. And once I got to college, that was just my main objective was hooping. I didn't have any career goals. I didn't have any 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 perspective outside of just being good at my sport.
1: Yeah, that, um, that's a great point that you bring up. Um, is when you get there, you know, um, you get to a point where, okay, I know this is gonna be my way out of my situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna put a hundred percent into this. Uh I'm gonna do what I can to get to this college or university because my family's telling me that's what I need to do to be successful. Yeah. Um and didn't really take the time to explore, you know, what your why is what do you what do you want to do in life and what do you want your impact to be. Yeah. Um so for me I just, I was blessed um, because I started playing football really late. Um, Mm -hmm. I had no idea what a clearinghouse was, you know? I didn't know
0: what a junior college was until my my senior banquet. Me neither. Yeah, I didn't know what none of that was. I had no
1: clue. I found out about junior college because my cousin didn't get drafted high enough as he wanted out of high school, so he went to junior Junior college college, and then got drafted um, out of junior college. And when it came time for me uh, to start playing ball— my junior year, you know, it was already too late for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed two years of foreign language. Um, I didn't know that. Uh yeah. I had another opportunity to not take foreign language and graduate. So that was my route out. Yeah. Uh to graduation. Um, I didn't really have a path after that. So when it came time to start getting recruited my senior year, my coach just let me hear phone calls and voicemails. Um mm of what could have been
0: and I, I definitely want to dive into like your hbcu experience because we always um as a community as a bl- as the black community we always kind of pose that question like what if our top black athletes went to hbcus but mm. before we do that jonathan like what was your experiences like from you know a, a sports standpoint in in high school coming up and like what did you know being an athlete mean to you oh uh, yeah
2: i uh definitely played uh football it was my sport um and that was my uh, my goal to use it to get out. Um, so I, I actually um, well, my freshman year, I was brought to varsity, um, which to me was like automatic jump in a success in yeah. the direction of my goal. Um, but it was also like learning, the, you know, learning the sport from a, a standpoint of like setting goals and, and working collectively and becoming a leader and not just uh, playing a sport, like it was also like, what was I doing it for? And I knew I wanted to do it for school, but I also knew I had to use it for an opportunity to, to build up that, um, not to say a resume, but essentially like that, that confidence that I needed to do things out, to use sport as, an, as a tool to do other things to, mm-hmm. to generate a result. So uh, I had a pretty successful high school uh, stint. I played uh, receiver DB, was recruited i had scholarship opportunities i was voted into the national football hall, high school hall of fame Ooh, I, talk that talk <laughs> i mean i've done it talk I mean, to I mean, me I nice we won, won back-to-back state championships um so for so me it was like it was i i didn't even have a goal for that much and then i over exceeded it in so many ways that wasn't just about performance on the football field it was about performance with team performance with diversity and creating and um just being opportunistic about every opportunity on the field. So um, when it was time to go to college, I I realized then that I've done a lot of things right, that I didn't necessarily need the sport to do it, and I didn't Mm -hmm. want to commit my life to – Chasing people and yeah, hitting yeah, people yeah. and you know putting myself at risk where I knew I was more talented with uh, a death behind it, not necessarily behind the desk, but from the mentality right. of being able to uh, be the business and the brains behind the business. So I was always interested in agency work. I was always interested in contracts. I was always interested in uh, behind the, the, the scenes, scenes work. Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah the 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 scenes, sports yeah. center. All the people that all those jobs and things is, that drove it from a, another
0: lane. Doran, you, you've had a very interesting um collegian career being that you you kinda got the taste of both worlds. Um you got the taste of the historical black college experience and you've also mm-hmm. had the experience of playing at a premier D one institution and conference. Being that you attended a HBCU, um what would how would you describe your experience there?
1: My HBCU experience was uh it was great. It was enlightening. I always grew up being that, you know, that pro black kid. Yeah. When I got to the HBCU, you know, it was like coming home, Mm -hmm. um, being around a whole bunch of people that were like me, um, having black professors, um, advisors, administrators. um, It was great. You know, it was a culture shock to go down to where it's all black folks and people say, wow, man, you talk white. And I'm like, no, homie. Like, I talk like (laughs) the people on on television. Yeah. Um, So I, I learned a lot of things in L.A., you know, how to code switch and how to do a lot of those things earlier. Um, and then when I got down there, it was a cool experience. Um, the Everything from the music, the fashion, the, the vibe, there's still that Southern hospitality that, mm-hmm. that you have when you go there. I really enjoyed it. I, I had an advisor who, man, he, he pulled me aside and just on some black stuff was like, you know, you you want to be here right now or not, like, grade-wise, yeah. um, yeah. and put me early um, and got me right. And uh, you can tell it was from a place of, like, I care about you and we want us to do well.
0: Yeah. From, a, from an infrastructure standpoint, as an athlete, where did the HBCU succeed and fail mm. in, like, cultivating your athletic talent?
1: So I didn't, I didn't get an opportunity to play at that HBCU. You know, I, I had issues with the grades, and I had a, a miscommunication with someone there when I went on a visit. So I thought that I would be able to go be a Prop 48, get my grades right after a year, and then, you know, walk on to the team. And that wasn't the case when I got there. So I worked out all the time and tried to get right. some saw my friends at all these Pac-10 schools, Big 12 schools that I played with. Mm-hmm. And I went up to the football center, you know, all the time and you know it was better than my high school but it definitely wasn't you know when you go home on visits and you meet your friends at ucla Mm -hmm. or it wasn't uh, the
0: same yeah same energy same infrastructure same. you can tell that
1: budget is way different not what it's supposed to be and they play those games and those are i I think they call them like gladiator games where you just kind of go and throw those those young men to the wolves when they play against those higher Mm -hmm. uh, conferences just to kind of get money to go through the rest of their season, season yeah. um, which is really unfortunate. But I saw that there's a huge disparity financially.
0: So I'll I pose this question. Like present day, we throw it out there. Like, you know, what if our top black talent went to HBCUs? Mm. Do you see that as a, as a plausible solution to keeping our talent within the black community? Or do we not have the infrastructure to do that?
1: That's a, that's a great, a deep question. Um, I think Jamel Hill just recently wrote an article mm-hmm. about that. And I think there's so many layers to it. But if we're talking about, you know, black students as a whole, I think there could be a whole infrastructure in place. Why doesn't BET show all the HBCU games? Yeah. That, um, yeah. You, you, you have these things that are in place that, that can help to support that. Getting the word out about that, it's really us who are driving the, the culture. We're the, we're the share coppers in yeah, this situation. Yeah, we are. We what are. we have is we have our bodies, we have our health, and we can go out there and do all this work and even if you're making millions of dollars and you do make it and you're the small few, then there's someone making billions of dollars um that are that's off of that hard work of yours. I think if we did go to all go to HBCUs, it's more than just the athletes. I think it's getting the other people involved. And building those teams kinda like yeah. you know, LeBron did and having these different infrastructures in place to make sure we don't have to always go to CBS or Fox or uh, ESPN to show our games.
0: Exactly. But I think the interesting aspect in that is that being that we are athletes, being that we are the commodity, we move the needle. So if Zion Williamson would have went to Morehouse – then Nike would have went to Morehouse, ESPN would have went to Morehouse, CBS would have went to Morehouse. And I think we have that power, but I think we we don't know ourselves enough and understand our power and influence enough to understand that we dictate this, you know, we may not own the entity, but we are the muscle behind this billion-dollar entity. Something to note is there was a time in history where HBCUs was the just a stepping stone for black athletes to get to the next level, to the pros. And this happened in the the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. The shift happened in 1970 when the USC Trojans played Alabama September 12, 1970. And USC brought with them a black quarterback, which is unprecedented, Mm -hmm. and a black running back. And they played an Alabama team who was yet to be integrated. I believe USC won that game 42 to 21, and it was that game that was a paradigm shift because then the University of Alabama was like, we need to integrate our team. We need to recruit the black athlete into this space, into this team. And that just started the paradigm shift. So it went from, like, let's go to Grambling, let's go to FAMU, let's, let's go to, to, to Howard to now let's go to Kentucky, let's go to Tennessee, let's go to Alabama. And it's just that culture has been sustained over you know decades and kind of even leading up to your experience like you went from the HBCU went JUCO elevated yourself to Mm -hmm. the Pac-10 at the time now Pac-12 what was your experience like at a D1 top tier university?
1: I I went from one extreme to the other you Mm -hmm. know I went from a place where it's nothing but us you know you got uh, nothing but black folks to a place where there's barely any and no matter what you look like as a black person on campus, they're asking you what sport you play. Yeah. Um, That's
0: something that I experienced during my time here.
1: Coming from L.A., it's like, why why is everybody smiling at me? Uh, Why is everyone staring at me? Yeah. You know, I I came from a place where if you stare at somebody too long, you might get jumped on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So it it was a different experience when I came here. But there were things that I noticed from the jump, being at a Power 5 school. Like how were you
0: um, able to relate to the coaches being that you know you are you did come from this predominantly black environment where you have black coaching staff, black medical staff, black advisors, black professors, and then you come here to Oregon State, which is Oregon is one of the whitest states in the country. What was that transition like for you going from that coaching staff to coming to a coaching staff that I assume was predominantly white?
1: earlier where we were talking about those coaches really fulfilling that role um, Mm -hmm. and taking that extra time to be there with you and really caring about you. So I felt that from this coaching staff. So there are certain things where I, you know, if if somebody called me the N-word, I'm not gonna have that conversation with one of my white coaches like I could at an HBCU um, or with a black coach in general. But there's other resources. Knowing here that we were lucky enough to have a black cultural center, I came from the HBCU experience and I was a transfer student, so I wasn't afraid to go out and find those resources. Yeah, I went to the Black Cultural Center. I went to BSU, where a lot of our uh, athletes didn't. And our schedule was really set up for us to not necessarily do that kind of stuff. I was uh, really—I really looked for that community. But you have to search for it as a student-athlete. And I think that kind of leads to the divide between students and student-athletes is, yeah. like, damn— Y'all are never here. We mm-hmm. have all these things and all these spaces, um, and we don't see y'all. Um, yeah. But we see a lot of the parties. You know, it's only like two hundred black students or three hundred black yeah, students. Three hundred. And all y'all got white girlfriends. Yeah. <laughs> right. But so
0: Jonathan kind of talked about this earlier in the episode too, where he he said there just there's just unspoken tension between athletes mm-hmm. and regular black students at predominantly white universities. Why do you, Jonathan? Why do you think that is? There's a system in place. <laughs>
2: That makes sure things stay according to plan, and um that that goes a lot deeper than just anything at an institution that goes from when we are seeing you know you see another when I grew up, you see another black person it's almost like a competition it's it's mm-hmm. not necessarily like a community, so from a young age you we really taught to like stick to our stick to our core family folks or you know crew or Gang, or whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's really not a welcoming space for um for us to build community in a lot of spaces yeah. in a lot of ways. So I think doing that and multiplying that times a thousand when they get to campus and these all these I mean the system is now expanded and you know there's those you know you're paying money while the other people over there they're getting um everything handed to everything them, everything handed to them. But at the same time they're the they're the ones that are essentially paying. For all the other shit that's happening, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because of them. Part, huh. So yeah. it's it it goes back to the systems in place, um, and I don't think it's necessarily a system that is like uh, always conscious. I think it's just a system that has been built over history, time, and unfortunate um, situations that make us uh, makes it harder for us to communicate, and we allow things to put um,
0: bigger barriers in between that. And under under that concept, in this type of environment where, you know, these white institutions go into these low-income communities of color, recruit these black players, cultivate their talents, put them on the football field, these coaches are getting contracts, the program is building buildings, Nike's making millions, you're walking you're walking billboard for Nike, you're walking billboard for Under Armour Adidas. Do you feel like at some point black athletes are being exploited and used at these types of institutions?
2: You said, do I feel that they
0: are? Yeah.
2: Oh, hell yeah. <laughs>
0: that's the game man that's the, yeah. the that's the
2: listen if they couldn't make money off of us we wouldn't we wouldn't, we wouldn't be, be here. here yeah we wouldn't be here um here. so that's let's get that straight um very first and foremost because that's the whole i mean we were brought here to work like we weren't brought here because we were looking for opportunities We were and brought it, and it, here it
0: perpetuates to work. that that white ownership and black muscle concept that we even saw mm-hmm. dating back to slavery it's just mm-hmm. like you get to this level of of money making, you're almost like an indentured servant to a point, to where like you come here, you provide your your body, your muscle, your athletic ability, you play in front of an all white crowd. Afterwards, it's just like, you, you're done. And then they replace you with another black athlete and another black athlete. And I think just kind of looking at football, like looking at the University of Alabama, I found myself counting the white players on the field. And typically when you have Auburn versus Alabama, like the only position that's probably white is probably an offensive lineman, one or two of them, and then a quarterback. And, special and I think in yeah. special teams, and I think that dynamic and even perpetuates itself at the professional level. So, so Dorian, like, where, how do you feel about
1: that? So, I think it. I think it goes pretty deep. When we talk about this conversation, is about higher education as a whole, um, the the importance of having. HBCUs and places that are there specifically to teach us is extremely important. Um, So when we did have that, um, and even, you know, before that, uh, when you look at primary education, it's who's teaching your kids. Yeah. Um, And if you got other people teaching your kids and you're mad that they're not teaching you about, teaching them about your culture, um, then that's on you. So I think for us as a whole is is for us to look at what we're teaching our kids and who's teaching our kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it makes when we make our way back to this industrial athletic complex that is the NC2A, mm-hmm. you know it's put in place like that to exploit our black bodies. And until it comes to a point, hopefully we're getting closer to that point where people can step away and kind of chip away at this and see that. There is an exploitation because yeah. you're not even guaranteed a degree. The most, amount, most,
0: and most time the, the retention rate of black athletes isn't high at all. A lot of kids end up dropping out once.
1: It's so at most places uh, there's you know they have academics for student athletes and other different things, but like you're saying those retention and graduation rates for black athletes are usually higher than non-black athletes for black students because they have those things they're forced to go, but there's always that gap. So they're always lower than white athletes at at predominantly white institutions, um, uh, Asian students at predominantly white institutions. And that's because they know, just like the university knows, is they brought them here to play sports. And the incentive for you is to go to the league. So when you're asking, like, why aren't these folks going into the community and hanging out with other black students, I mean, shoot. Why would you? You have yeah. your set your set group of friends. If you're on a football team, you got 100 guys that you're going into and those are all going to be your, you know, mm-hmm. s- at least 20 of those guys are going to be your friends. So, why do I have to go out and work hard to make new friends? I'm just trying to work with these guys, do what I need to do for my 3 years and then go to the league. Yeah. And it's not really pushed on you as hard as it could be um to say These are some of the the barriers. Uh, They always tell you people don't make it to the league, Mm -hmm. but what are some of those other barriers you're going to hit on your way if you don't make it? Um, So I think sharing the knowledge is really huge um, for for our older, uh, more seasoned athletes um, to our current guys because everybody says it's not going to be me, and it ends up being you about 87% of the time.
0: Yeah, from a from a collegiate and from an amateur and business standpoint, um, some of these football programs, for instance, the University of Texas, their program, their revenue reached through their program, through their football mm-hmm. program reached two hundred and nineteen million dollars. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall where do you guys fall on the spectrum of athletes getting compensated for their talents? Is that something that you guys believe in, or do you think that the scholarship um approach to compensating athletes with a monthly stipend is, is sufficient enough, or do you think that um, revenue should be divvied out to these student-athletes? I have a
2: unique perspective on this. I understand the business side of it, so I understand, like, if you pay these athletes, then it's just, it, not even just athletes thinking football because football is really the only sport that makes money unless yeah. you have yeah, a big basketball football and basketball unless, basketball, you, have, football, unless basketball. you have a good basketball team yeah. a lot of teams that don't have a good basketball team that make no money so whatever you have a good basketball team specifically and or if they're surviving or a good coach or whatever mm-hmm. then you can make good money but football is really like the key driver um for most institutions and um and knowing that and understanding like you know if you're a Track star, you probably ain't gonna sell no jerseys or no yeah. spikes or no nothing different that <laughs> Sorry, right. No, one, no onesies <laughs> or nothing that's gonna drive uh, your brand. But yeah, um, you still committing the same amount of energy and the same amount of hours and you're a lot, the same amount of influence to whatever exactly. skill that may be. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think it's a bigger picture of. If there's money, the money's being created uh, by black athletes, I think that black athletes should obviously have an a, a, uh, access and entryway into automatically getting their MBA or f- for future education covered so mm-hmm. they shouldn't have to be paying for education in any sort. Um, and I think it should open up a door to help the next generation of that athlete to be able to pass that forward to generations behind them so that way the scholarship isn't necessarily just... Um, uh, going to the student is going to a generational change that helps the student and the student's family or those in funds that are being created off of those students can be projected back into the mm-hmm. communities that need it most that, mm-hmm. is, that they're recruiting from so I, I don't think it's necessarily a system where it's like it's going to be successful if you know if your jersey sells you know and you make a two million dollars i don't think you make an athlete in college making two million dollars ain't going to be like a, a changer for the community or the culture yeah. i think Access to two million dollars going to that player's community, or energy that is driving, that brings that university closer to those students, um, in a way that taps into their space, their current, com- and the places that need it most, and they can address that. I think that's the shift that needs to happen. But the money shouldn't just be going to the same white people. If that's what you're saying, like it shouldn't be going to the same brands, which are white. Um, yeah, it should definitely be spread into the communities of the people. And I think the way that they're trying to, the way that they're shaping it out is well we don't want to give the players money because all this other business side and all this other yeah, stuff. Like, it's well, it's, and it it's, it's
0: the really some, it most. some plantation, indentured slave type stuff to where, it's, like, it's you put it. in the work and you don't get the, the ben- benefit.
1: Yeah, it's, it, I think it's a sharecropping system yeah. um, where you work hard enough so you can stay here and I'll reap the benefits mm-hmm. and you can eat um, and get a chance at a degree. So I've had this conversation with plenty of student-athletes and – former teammates. And hell yeah, if you're selling jerseys, you should definitely get a piece of that. But also, I think, you know, I look at things kind of broader as well. If you're going to be that guy or, you know, that woman that's selling jerseys um, that's going to be on the video games, you should get compensated for that. But you should also be taught before you're compensated on how... To manage your money you can, I think you can work within that system there's there's things that you can do where you can have money set aside create funds so they have to go through money management classes and courses and you can get it after you graduate so you're walking away with a little something rather than being an 18 year old spending this money there's yeah. there's guys that are getting this stipend in these scholarships and they're sending and it home I'm
0: sending money home yeah
1: I don't know about y'all, but I knew people that send that scholarship home. And that scholarship money is not a lot. And, yeah. you know, I, I played 13 years ago, but, you know, there there was a season where I lost a lot of weight um, because we had to spend that money on on getting a, an apartment and paying the first and last month's rent and a deposit. Yeah. And, you know, going to going to get food had to come after having a place. Um, you know, you, you're sleeping on... You're sleeping on air mattresses or mattresses on the floor that you get passed down from your teammates um, after That's they crazy. graduate. So, you know, sometimes it's nice. Some 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 of these guys come from well-to-do families, and you're good. So I think, you know, we there was a conversation about what Tim Tebow was saying, where I'm doing this for my school. I'm like, well, shit, of course you are. You, you come from a pretty yeah. decent family. Yeah. Um, uh, and that means you probably weren't having conversations with your teammates that were actually sending this money home. And I think there's also ways where you can continue to support these athletes as well. You know, there's there's going to be some lifelong injuries that you're going to probably not feel until you hit your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s mm-hmm. from playing that sport and giving that. Um, so I think long-term care and insurance, I think, is important too because, you know, we have—I I got something for a concussion. They have a settlement for concussions. Now, I don't have any documented concussions in college. But I play defensive line. I got my bell rung quite a few times, but I'm not going to tell you that I did because I want to play. Yeah. So I'm not going to see any of that concussion money, um, but I'm going to feel those consequences for the rest of my life. Yeah. So having some long-term care and long-term insurance based off of some of that money is – I think is uh, something that will benefit all the student athletes, uh, no matter you know what their nationality or um, ethnicity is, yeah. um, but specifically black athletes
0: and on the topic of playing, paying athletes, I believe that like the, I said, college athletes should get a percentage of the total revenue generated by their respective sports, so if their their college makes two hundred million, they should get five percent of that, and that should that five percent should be divvied up, divided you know you take that five percent of two hundred million and you divide that by 75, How I mean, many players on the football team, and then everybody's walking home with
1: a $15,000 check at the end of the season or something like that. I, so I, I we're in a capitalistic society, um, and some of these athletic departments and teams um, rely on money from other sports, um, and some don't. So there's some schools that are going to be like, your. Alabama, LSU's, and Oregon's that do a really good job of uh, making money from those sports. Duke, Kentucky, um, but there's certain guys that 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 drive that. And if you're a professional athlete, Kobe is going to get paid more than uh, Mad Dog Madsen. You know what I'm saying? So um, he's going to get paid more than Smush Parker. Um, so I think those those people that are doing that work and that are that they should see more. Um, they should be able to get that because some of these guys on the team, of course, you're doing great. But if you're a third string kicker, you're not selling no jerseys. You're putting in a lot of work and you're doing a lot of work. Cool, thank you. Um, but the person, Zion, for instance, needs to be the guy making that, making the lion's share of that, to me at least.
2: And, and I'd say I get both points, and I get all points. I definitely think players should be compensated because it's their brand, it's their product, and they're loaning their brand to any entity, university, or whatever program. But I'll say, at the end of the day, just paying players doesn't make it sustainable to build the community and the structure that we need. Like that yeah. is the point I'm just trying to make. So like, I don't like whether a player, a star player, is getting two million dollars, and another player is getting two hundred dollars. Like that doesn't solve the problem for. The community that is being robbed, or the community that's really not getting represented in the way that will build sustainable programs, education platforms, roadmaps, structure that needs to go back to the communities. Like the the biggest, easiest thing is the point is at the players, but it's like, no, what about the communities where the players come? Because that's the home. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's so the that's the little brothers. Then they don't have to send their checks back. Now the university's taking care of a community mm-hmm. uh, in, in one way, shape, or form. That helps provide access. Now, to me, that's like that will help open up doors for where people make better decisions. Because if they get two million dollars and they don't know how to handle two million dollars, then we still got the same problem, and it doesn't it doesn't fix anything. But if they know where their money's going and how they use their money and how it affects their community, and now you got a player that's putting on for his community rather mm-hmm. than just putting on the you know sell a jersey, it's a different. I think it's a different um sustainable approach.
1: I, you, I get what you're saying, um, and I think that goes back to the point of having our players go to HBCUs. So with, with that, it's not just the athletes, right? A lot of those athletes aren't going to make it. They're not going to make that money for their schools. But what HBCUs do a great job of, graduating their students, they do a great job of making lawyers, doctors, politicians, school teachers, and those people that are going to go in and have an impact on that community and go back into their community.
0: If we combine your perspective of community building and holding these universities that take our talent out of these communities and thrust them into this billion billion dollar business essentially, and make millions and millions and millions off our athletes to not invest in our communities, I think we need to do a better job as a community of cultivating and educating ourselves financially. That way when our players are compensated for their talents at this collegiate level, they can then take that money and invest it back into their community while holding the university accountable for investing back in our community, so now we're, you know, we're doubling down in a sense. You know, our our athletes getting paid, our communities are building, you know, and, and there's a there's a level of equity that's that's involved from all sides.
1: Right. And speaking of equity, I mean, there's there's I, I, there's a lot of ways you can look at this too. If we if we're talking about that amount of money, why not say if we're gonna spend a portion of that money and put scholarship funds away for black Non student athletes to come to the school, yeah we're gonna create programs that are going to um help to make black athletic directors um black um um black leaders that can be in the n c two a and these other structures um teach these kids early about these opportunities at network and different companies that are making money off of them so then they can be put in those places of leadership um, and they can know these things are available earlier you know yes. how many how many how many guys on a football team know how to become an athletic director
2: why not create programs and sustainable platforms that your black athletes or your black students are building that goes directly back to the nourishment and then give them that sense of ownership and entitlement so that way when they do get out of here, they understand their bigger purpose and they're already connected to a community that builds them. And if gentrification happens, it's just been happening since nine, nine, day one, mm-hmm. but if we have the structure in place to help yes, support... America is gentrification, the, yeah, right? but if we have the structure in place where the university is behind it and they're supporting specific those families or these people of color or these different... And the athletes are invested in those spaces just as much... It makes it that much harder. I mean, no matter where we go, people are going to want to follow, and they're going to want to know what's going on and how can they be a part. That's just, so I'm not going to ever right, run yeah. from try to think that's going to be the problem. It's always going to be more like, well, what are we doing regardless? And and
0: if we're not even doing that in our own community, the university ain't going to do that in, in our community. Even going beyond the, the responsibility that these institutions have to the community, I think we also got to hold some of these um, brands accountable as well. The Nikes, the Adidas, the Under Armors that use black athletes to again make billions and billions of dollars um so i pose this question to you jonathan specifically like what are these brands without black athletes and, and even like in the 80s when we when we saw michael jordan take nike to the next level you know nike was a struggling shoe company yeah. trying to find their footing in, in basketball and then they michael jordan just help Nike become what Nike is today? If Nike, if, if, if well, that's for certain. Sure. If Nike didn't have black athletes, it would
2: still just be a running company, 100%. It yeah. started as a running company in Eugene. God bless them all. I know the whole story. I've digested it and spilled that whole thing a thousand times. It's a lot of juice, but it was really based on running. And without the black athlete right now, I mean, it wouldn't. I mean, but at the same time, it's like, The sad part is a lot of black athletes would think, what would they be doing on the opposite side? I'm like, well, shit, what do you think? You'd be doing the same thing if you just understood the value of your name, the value of your influence on the community and the culture. Um, But the idea of understanding, like, who is the influential, the most influential, and the most captivating, and the most farmed, the most polarizing, it's always been um, traditionally black athletes um, who shifted the ways of war, who shifted the ways of culture. Um, Joe Lewis shifted World War II heavily. And it's like, you know, that's... But it's, you know, it's it's just a lot of things that we don't even stop and acknowledge from our own selves that will always keep us the product instead of the consumer. I mean, the producer will always be the the opposite because we haven't really stopped and looked. And I think for us, we're, what we're doing is not just from the black athlete standpoint, what we're better, but with uh, what you're doing with people of color, um, Sneaker Week, um, all the different programs that we're a part of, it's more about getting that and earning that back and understand like who we are first because at the end of the day I don't give a shit nobody's responsible for us that's been very clear from day mm-hmm. one like nobody's responsible for us and I'm not going to sit around and ask beg or complain about it it's more about who do we like f- wh- how do we find solution and how do we self-identify so that we can continue to sustain solution and grow from solution and then pass solution down
1: I, don't think, these, I think athletes and culture so I think these sneaker brands came along at a at a great time um not only to get their revenue driven by black athletes but also by black culture our our hip hop culture is driven the world for the last what forty years now, yeah, so that sneaker culture is also tied into hip hop culture so when when you really saw that steep incline um you see these uh, kids from like the Fab Five rocking the black socks, mm-hmm. listening to hip hop music, taking over the world um they didn't get no money from that, but the brands did. They got street agents out here going to get these kids um, they got all these programs set up to to farm these kids from a a u all the way up, and you know you pay those coaches and the coaches deliver so I don't think they would be really anywhere without the athlete and their connection to the culture
2: right i working in the brand i worked nike for six years in entertainment marketing traveled the world worked with all types of famous folks and athletes and um i mean party with michael jordan for his birthday like you didn't
1: invite me ain't that, <laughs> that one, i didn't
2: have no invites for that one for sure but i would say i've seen i've seen a pretty high pinnacle of like the sport world with the brands and interaction and you know who's eating off of that, and who who's the one being ate off of, and that. so for me, my this this to so what Dorian's saying, like, um, it's it's literally uh, yeah, I, that's why I resigned. I was like, this shit is crazy. This shit makes no sense. We're doing all this work, and and it's all based on, and my counterparts were white, um, mostly. The leaders were white for sure. Um, but it was like pitching them on how to get into our culture and how to uh, help sell (laughs) a shoe or to how to help recruits or how to I mean they they, I mean when they have a a new uh, athlete coming who just graduated and is going to go into the draft Mm -hmm. they have a certain person I won't say his name but they have a certain person usually certain set of few people that usually host them, and they're a black, af- black person, so it's like, find the mirror person to help them feel comfortable at home, but <laughs> then yeah. it's like, the designers are all white, the production, production team is white, the marketing team is white, and it's kind of like, oh, shit, well, you know, but, you know, you might see a little sprinkle here and there, but the idea is, like, literally, this is how we need to dissect you in order to go get the rest of you. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's unfortunate, but it's also something that, like, at the end of the day, it's like, to me, it's like, well, it is what it is. We know what it is, but not, it's not about changing their narrative. It's about like making sure that the person that walks in there understands that their true authority and their true power is who they are, um, first and foremost. And the branding ever gonna f- supplement that or or feed into their true uh, reason for being here or the people that they really love. It's it's a lot bigger than that.
0: So. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to thank you guys for coming on the CD Color Reimagine podcast presented to you by People of Color um i enjoyed your perspective i enjoyed this topic and i hope to have you guys back soon Um, thank
2: you keep doing the great work for real like i'm very proud of you man um i'm excited about what you're doing i'm excited about people of color i see it i talk about it all the time you got a lot of energy coming your way um keep growing it and you know you got our support fully thank um, you thank you and i'm very proud of you man thank you thank you so much
1: yeah thank you so much for having us. I just like to echo everything John said. Um, Everything that you've done is just amazing, Um, high quality, and very thoughtful and about the culture. So thank thank you you so much for uh, having us on, but really doing what you're doing. And I know it's gonna, it's about to take over the world. So um, (laughs) when when you do it, don't forget us. And if Uh, you have a party with Michael Jordan, invite me. (laughs) And that Uh, party
2: was dope, but it was it was cool. uh, (laughs) It was cool.
0: Thanks again. <laughs> <laughs> Boy,
1: yeah. Black excellence, a young perfectionist white America's fairest intelligent men with melanin. Oh, proud apple son of African immigrants. every bag at
0: his back like I'm about to psh, psh, psh with anyone. You a fail, nigga.